Hey everybody, Magnus here. Got a question for you. What do The Amazing Spider-Man, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, X-Men, The Last Stand, X-Men, Days of Future Past, X2, X-Men United, 300, Batman Begins, Thor The Dark World, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Superman Returns, Thor, X-Men Origins, Wolverine, Captain America, The First Avenger, the 2014 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film, X-Men The First Class, and The Incredible Hulk all have in common. Man of Steel outgrossed all of them. Sorry, I'm not trying to be a brat about that. I just, I'm sick and fucking tired of the deliberate misinformation about this. Anyway. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and when it comes to talking about comics, movies, and TV shows, I keep on keeping on by talking about comics, movies, and TV shows, and I just keep on doing it. Anyway, so that's that stuff. Now, lately, I've been keeping on keeping on by talking about Superman. In point of fact, I'm nearing the end of my mega series celebrating Superman comics. You see, I've spent the past bunch of weeks talking about Superman, all about Superman comics. Understand? Anyway, I'll come back to that later, but for right now, though, I should point out that I've done a lot of six-episode miniseries dedicated to a particular topic or theme or idea in times past, so by itself, that's really nothing new, you understand? Just another week in the life of His Excellency Magnus. What is different here is that this uh, Superman mega series that I've been going through is probably the biggest and most ambitious thing that I've ever attempted. I mean, just look at how long this some bitch has lasted. It's been pretty exhausting, too, let me tell you. I'm, don't get me wrong. I know how much of you serfs and beggars who avidly follow my every podcast episode have all loved this mega series and how you all need a new pair of shorts after each show and everything but at the same time it's been a real ass kicking to go through all this stuff but of all characters superman's worth it now 
it'd be totally understandable if you're wondering why I'm going to all this trouble for Superman right now. So, in case it wasn't obvious, 2014 is a seriously important milestone in Superman's history because this year marks his 76th anniversary. Because of that, my opinion is there's no better way to spend 2014 than talking about Superman. 76 years. I mean, this is huge. No other superhero character has stuck around in comics for 76 years. Not before this one. So, it made a lot of sense to spend at least a little bit of time during 2014 celebrating Superman's 76th anniversary. You guys understand what I'm saying here? I'll repeat it in case any of you are missing the point. There's no better way to spend the year of 2014. And there's no better character to focus on than Superman and obsessing just over how freaking awesome Superman is. And it's worth celebrating that the fact that this year is Superman's 76th anniversary. So anyway, that's enough of that stuff, I think. Now, unless you're a complete Trennis Magnus punches reality noob, you probably know what a Burn Age Superman fan that I am. And that relates directly back to the subject here in this episode, because I'm going to be talking about, wait for it, a Burn Age Superman story. But before I get too far into that, I'd probably better introduce my co-host. Joining me today is a man amongst men. A man of few words who never minces words. A man who says what he means, means what he says, and presses charges against anybody who dares to misquote him. He's a man who doesn't hold other people's podcasting negligence against them. One of the few men who could ever claim to be one of my podcasting vassals. He's a man who stridently refused to let one silly daredevil back issue stand between him and a good podcast episode. This is a man. My guest, the guy that we're talking about here, he's a man about whom much has been said, but almost nothing has ever been understood. An enigma. Even to himself, I present the one, the only, the inimitable, unconquerable, irreversible, intractable, unstoppable, indefatigable, interminable, impossible, or lacking that, just very highly improbable, Mr. J. David Weeder himself, but you can call him Dave. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Thank you. Very good. I think you just probably melted a redeemable shag's brain. Oh, I did? You've used all the I words, so now he'll have nothing to describe Rob Kelly. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Well, that was so not even my point. And I, you know, and, and try not to interpret this as a shot across the bow. Actually, I don't think either of them listen to me. Why would they? But um, I really don't listen to Fire and Water podcast, and there's nothing personal in that. It's just that I kind of washed my hands of the entire New 52 a couple of years back, basically not long after it started. And so, you know, I was listening to that show. I freaking loved it. We, you know, every episode was better than the last. I can only imagine how good it must be these days. But I'm not listening to it because I'm just not really into the material itself. I like the people. 
just not the material. You know, does that make uh, sense? Yeah, I get that. So, well, anyway, so uh, how, how you doing today, man? It's been a long time since we talked. Yes, I am well. I am well. I've had my pre-podcast bowel movement, so I'm set. <laughs> okay, well, I'm I'm glad to know that. Thank you for telling me. Now, I, I'm nothing if not a sharing person. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There's something about you and Wilson. The minute either of you are, uh, uh, come on here, you always got to talk about deuces you drop. It's great. I love it. <laughs> well, now, Dave hasn't been back to this show in several months. And honestly, the last time he was here, it was just as a brief guest uh, thing it, it, within the context of my three and a half hour 50th episode, epic milestone, anniversary, retrospective, spectacular extravaganza. Before that, Dave was only here for a shoot the shit episode. So, to put it another way, Dave was kind enough to bail me out of a real mess by joining me just to hang out and talk about how awesome Daredevil is. That's basically what that shoot the shit episode was all about. It was about Dave, J. David Weeder. Swing into the rescue. And so, because of all that stuff, because I owe Dave for two different favors now, I thought it was only fair and right to not only invite him back to the show, but to open the floor and let him choose today's story. So, on that note, Dave, would you do the honors of introducing this story to my peasant listeners? Yes, this time around, we are looking at the Supergirl saga from the, well, tail end of the burn age proper i'm sure nothing controversial can come of this story no well i don't know i mean something about female superheroes that may actually turn off some segments of the listening base otherwise i think this is just a fun little adventure story what's you know what's offensive about it possibly you know yeah we'll see (laughs) (laughs) yeah <laughs> Talking about this bad boy, I just want to triple underline this part, was Dave's idea, but I have to say that he didn't really have to argue in favor of this story very much. I mean, I'd been thinking a lot about the Supergirl saga right around the time that Dave suggested it, so I agreed to do this, you know, right away. So, that begs the question, what made you choose the Supergirl saga out of all possible Superman stories to talk about? Um, Well, last year we had the big brouhaha about Man of Steel and the fatal ending. If you haven't seen it by now, spoilers, I guess. Mm -hmm. You've had a year. It's on home video. And I wanted to explore the difference in the context, mainly because the argument that was thrown against me when I was not anti-killing, but wished they'd gone another way. The argument that got me into the Hulk rage was, oh, look at Superman number 22. He killed Zod. Oh, spoiler. Um, But... The context of the story fascinated me, and as soon as you said, what's a Superman story you want to cover? I'm like, you know, I've been wanting to reread this in its entirety again. Let's throw this on the table and really chew on it. You know, it's kind of funny. Look, uh, guys, I'm just going to peel back the curtain a little bit and say that, you know, Dave and I did a lot of prep on this, at least in terms of scheduling our conversation. But, I, you know, we haven't really talked about what, with you know, just between each other, we haven't really talked about the angle that he and I are going to be coming at in this story. So there's every, now that I'm thinking about it, there, there is every possibility here. He and I may actually come down on different sides of a few different things. And obviously, I mean, I, you know, I love Dave. He's a great guy. So, you know, certainly there's nothing personal there. It's just, this, this actually is going to go. It could go (laughs) directions. I was not expecting. So this is great. I love it. Well, it, yeah, it may actually go directions. I wasn't expecting either oddly enough, but (laughs) that, that is to be explored. 
Fair enough. But before we get too far into this thing, though, um, another duo of podcasters out there talked about the Supergirl saga years ago. And I refer, obviously, to Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. They talked about the same story back in episodes 27 and 28 of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which you can find at FortressOfBailey2.com. I highly recommend you guys check those episodes out, too, because Dave's in my discussion, at least I'm not intending it to be a companion to their discussion over on From, uh, From Crisis to Crisis. But as I say, I have no idea how things are going to play out here, so... Because I have no idea what Dave's bringing to this story, so who's to say how these things are going to play out? But either way, I do highly encourage you uh, listening to that episode, and I guess in tandem with this one. And if nothing else, it's a good show. If you're not listening to it, shame on you. You should be. Anyway, so Dave, this story exists really for two major reasons, at least as far as I can tell. First, DC had to eliminate the pocket universe. Second... John Byrne wanted this story uh, – clearly, he wanted this story to be his closing statements on Superman. Do you agree with that? Those are really the two major functions this story serves? I don't know if it was his final statement or a big middle finger to editorial, like, write yourself out of this. But there – there, I mean, definitely there are some very clear statements made at the end that the character is not who he was at the beginning of Man of Steel number one. That's true. And if this is the final statement that John Byrne, if this is his final thesis, it it's bothersome after the fact. And I wouldn't have thought that before rereading it for the show. <laughs> you know, again, yeah, I hadn't really considered that um, a whole lot myself. But, okay, fair enough. Well, we can come back to that. Now, as to the other, I mean, did you even like the, the idea, like the concept of the pocket universe? No. And the reason is I always found it frustrating to try to put the pieces together. And it always seemed like the bridge too far, you know, that there's this whole other universe created just to give the middle finger to the Legion. In essence, and and to create something where Superboy can still be in play, but not really be in play. All right. It's cheating. It's a big cheat code. Again, wow. I That was not the, the tack I was expecting you to take on that at all. Um, Sorry. <laughs> well... Tell you what, um, how about we just go ahead and knock the uh, synopses out, and um, then we can actually come back to this, because I, I, I want to hear more of this. Um, I'll even give you a first word on, on all of that, but for right now, I'm just going to go ahead and synopsize all this stuff. So, we've got Superman, Volume 2, Number 21, Executive Editor is Dick Giordano, Cover Artist is John Byrne, Writer is John Byrne, Penciler is John Byrne, Inker is John Beatty. Colorist is Petra Scutis, letterer is John Costanza, editors are Mike Carlin and Renee. Title is You Can't Go Home Again. This is the first part of the Supergirl saga. As people in battle suits watch within a beleaguered, high tech fortress on a devastated world, Superman finds himself being followed, but can't seem to find the, the person following him until he picks up the heartbeat a female. Heartbeat. Superman catches the person from behind, and, and he's surprised to find a young, blonde-haired woman wearing a female version of a Superman costume. The woman identifies herself as Supergirl and surprises Superman again by transforming her appearance into the red-haired likeness of his Smallville sweetheart, Lana Lang. 
and then announces that she received her powers from Lex Luthor. This leads to a confusing situation along the lines of a screwball comedy from the 1930s between both Superman and Supergirl, where she blasts Superman right out of the sky using her telekinetic powers, and then turns invisible before attacking Superman again, this time forcing him underground. Superman burrows his way back to his house in Smallville, where he finds his parents and Lana Lang all tied up in the cellar by a woman matching Supergirl's description. I have to assume this was a pretty easy identification for them to make, because how many flying women are there in the DC universe who wear a female version of Superman's uniform? Anyway, Superman realizes something about uh, all of this. This Supergirl claiming to be Lana Lang, he gets an, an inspiration here, and so lures her to the LexCorp building in Metropolis... And upon seeing her, that is to say Supergirl, Lex assumes that this must be Superman's sister. Supergirl doesn't recognize Lex, though, which leads Superman to believe that she came from the same pocket universe dimension that he'd visited earlier, the one that Superboy from the Legion of Superheroes came from. Yes, Robin. The only possible explanation. As he tells her all of this, a teleportation... Tele... A teleportation field surrounds them both, and Supergirl tells Superman not to worry because they're simply being transported from this world back into the pocket universe. I ask you, sir, what is there to be worried about? Upon arriving there, Superman meets that world's Lex Luthor, the red-haired man in the battle suit that was seen earlier in the story, who welcomes him to the end of the world. Adventures of Superman number 444. Yes, we're going to do the co- we're going to do the credits for this one too. Executive editor is Dick Giordano, cover a- artist is Jerry Ordway, writer is John Byrne, penciler is Jerry Ordway, inker is Dennis Yonke. I don't completely know how to pronounce that. Colorist Yonke's hmm? how I've heard it pronounced. Oh, really? Okay, good. Well, that's a that's a load off. All right, good deal. Okay, well, colorist is Petrus Catiz, letter is Albert de Guzman. Editor is Mike Carlin. Title is Parallel Lives, Lives, you understand, with a V, Meet at Infinity. In the second part of the Supergirl saga, Superman mourns the loss of Superboy's adoptive parents and learns about the sad state of affairs that is the pocket universe Earth following uh, Superboy's disappearance from that reality. That universe's Lex Luthor explains that he was trying to find out where Superboy disappeared to by using the equipment in Superboy's secret lab when he accidentally stumbled upon the three Phantom Zone criminals, namely General Zod, Zayora, and Quex Ol, who claimed to be innocent survivors of the, destru- of the destruction of Krypton, and then Lex releases them from their prison. Destroying both the lab and the Phantom Zone projector, the Phantom Zone criminals went on a destructive rampage against the whole world, claiming to be its rulers and killing anyone that got in their way. Lex Luthor formed a resistance group and even gave Lana Lang superpowers, so he says, uh, similar to Superman's, but it only resulted in the Phantom Zone criminals going so far as to destroy the Earth by burning away its atmosphere, killing everyone except those in Luthor's Smallville Citadel. After discovering the existence of this other Earth, 
Luther sent Supergirl across the dimensional barrier, blanking her memory in the process, but planting in her mind a compulsion to go to Metropolis in, or in order to contact Superman. Superman at this point vows to join the Resistance uh, to put an end to the Phantom Zone criminal's reign of terror on this world. Of course you know, this means war. Superman, number 22. Executive editor is Dick Giordano, cover artist John Byrne, writer's John Byrne, penciler's John Byrne, inker's John Byrne, colorist is Petra Scotis, letterer is John Costanza, editor is Mike Carlin, and Renee... <laughs> Sorry. No problem. Story is entitled The Price. The third and final part of the Supergirl saga, Superman, along, along with Supergirl, Lex Luthor, and his resistance team confront the Phantom Zone criminals as they engage in a battle that results in great disaster. The Smallville Citadel is destroyed. All of uh, Luthor's team members are killed, and Supergirl's is surprisingly, wait for it, melted. The girl done melted. Lex Luthor secretly tells Superman to head toward Superboy's underground lab while he tends to distracting the Phantom Zone criminals. As the Man of Steel heads there, Quexul goes after him and pummels him into the ground, his strength obviously greater than Superman's. Upon reaching the underground lab where there's still air to breathe, Superman finds a hidden lead canister that contains the gold kryptonite and exposes Quexul to it. Turning the underground lab into a makeshift prison and hiding the gold kryptonite sample inside his cape, Superman also depowers General Zod and Zayora and captures them, letting them languish while he goes to find Lex Luthor, who is now mortally injured. Before passing away, Luthor reveals to Superman two very hard truths. Number one, Supergirl was in fact a genetically engineered blob of protoplasm which he brought to life and gave the powers of Superman, kind of, and the memories of Lana Lang, who'd been one of the first to die much earlier during the war, and hard truth number two, he failed to use the gold kryptonite due to some the same kind of pride issue that the mainstream Earth universe counterpart has with Superman. He wanted the destruction of the Phantom Zone criminals to be by his own hand. Luther makes Superman swear that he will not let this same disaster that befell the pocket, the pocket universe Earth take place anyplace else. And then he dies and stuff. Superman eventually gets the drop on the criminals and takes away their powers using gold kryptonite. Faced with a, a difficult decision of what to do with the three evil Kryptonians who committed genocide on a global scale, he chooses to execute them by fatal exposure to green kryptonite watching sadly as all three of them die. After burying their bodies, Superman brings the melted pile of goo that is Supergirl back to his own universe to be put in the care of his adoptive parents while he goes off to contemplate taking the lives of the Phantom Zone criminals. The End. Since Dave is the guest of honor here, I, and since I've been running my mouth nonstop for so long now, I figure now's probably a good time to uh, give Dave first dibs on talking about this bad boy. So what'd you think, man? I, I told you before we started recording, my, my perspective on it changed. I remembered reading 22 at a convenience store when it was on the spinner rack. 
and it hit me like a ton of bricks. This time around, it hit me again because as much as I wanted to say, well, Superman shouldn't kill, but this this is, you know, the end of the world, it suddenly dawned on me he didn't need to kill them. There was no execution necessary because they're powerless on a world where everything is dead. Okay. And, uh, and uh, it completely changed the perspective here. If this is the final thesis that John Byrne was wanting to say, you're looking at Superman failing in pretty damn near every possible way. The whole world is gone and he stooped to the level of executioner. Mm-hmm. Did the Phantom Zone criminals deserve to die? Most certainly. They destroyed a world, dude. Was Superman right to do it? We're talking about powerless Kryptonians that wouldn't be able to leave a dead planet. And suddenly, as much as I wanted to say, well, Man of Steel was a different context, the Clark Kent and Man of Steel, the movie, I mean, was far more justified in what he did with Zod than what happened here. Because Clark Kent in, in Superman and Man of Steel, he's preventing this eventuality. And I got to the end of reading this. I'm like, well, crap. Well, you know, you've, I have no leg to stand on, on on Man of Steel any longer. You don't. Mm-mm. So uh, so you're like you're reversing yourself and you think he should have killed or should not have killed in Man of Steel. In Man of Steel, looking at what could have resulted, seeing that this is, I mean, everybody's dead, dude. This is the eventuality of, of that timeline if Superman hadn't intervened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Superman had to step up, be a big boy, and do what had to be done. Because the way he was cornered, there was nothing else. There was no other way. Sure. Now, the presentation, a little bit different, you know, in terms of just being a movie, but the action itself... I don't see any any way around it now. Well, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I think this story operates on a few levels. First, I think John Byrne clearly thinks there are circumstances where Superman's perfectly justified in taking life. And on the one hand, you immediately want to dismiss that. But at the same time, it's undeniable that there are some threats that only Superman can deal with. And some of those threats are so threatening that Superman has no other choice. And this is just how I'm thinking about it. Try not to think of this as a rebuttal to what you just said, all right? No, and I think we're in agreement there. Here's the thing. We're not talking about car thieves and bank robbers because we have a criminal justice system that's ready, willing, and able to to prosecute those types of people. But – For your more cosmic threats, enemies that are not only capable of destroying life of wherever it's found, but have shown a willingness to do it, guys, Superman has to do something here. And it's well and good to say that Superman should never kill, and in most cases he shouldn't. Like 99.999999% of the time he shouldn't. But now and then there are cases where Superman's risking the entire universe if he doesn't play judge jury, and executioner. But here's the thing. I think only containing a threat, I think, was only part of it. I think the other thing here, the thing that really just pisses people off, I I think most people don't want Superman to kill. But push comes to shove, nobody seemed to mind the fact that, at least for a time, we all believed that Superman killed Doomsday in the storyline Doomsday. 
Now, we didn't know he was going to come back, but in the moment, neither did anyone else. As far as anybody knew at the time when those comics were coming out, Superman killed Doomsday, and we all realized – I don't remember there even being any controversy about that. It's just something that we all seem to understand it needed to be done. Where I think people get really uncomfortable is when you have Superman not playing Executioner, when he's playing Judge. That's the part that I think people are uncomfortable with. You know, if Superman was fighting for his life and had, had no choice but to use green kryptonite to kill these people just to defend himself, I think people would have, you know, swallowed that pill and just let it, let it go. It's the fact that this was, as much as anything, he's not just containing a threat. He is taking it upon himself to punish people. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is what ultimately turns a lot of people off and gives this story a lot of its controversy. What do you think? No, I would agree with that. It's it's also presentation. Here we see the squirming, you know, horrific deaths of these people where you take Superman 2 and not this isn't a matter of quality, just the way it's presented. Superman crushes Zod's hands, throws him down a shaft. You don't think much about it because it's kind of out of sight. Mm-hmm. Here you're forced to deal with the grisly demise of these characters and you don't like them. But nobody wants to watch – well, no sane person wants to watch another person die. Right. It's, it's uncomfortable because we're dealing with – you know, basically it's about a page's worth of, of interest spread across two pages. But that's a long lingering death in comic book form. If this were a television, you'd be looking at a good five-minute scene. Yeah. I would agree. And the hell of it is, it's not just uh, execution. I mean, there are a lot of different ways that people die here. I mean, uh, Zayorg basically gets tortured to death. I mean, let's call mm-hmm. that what it is. The other two, though, Zod and Quexol, they uh, they basically... Uh, well, hold on. Quexol strangles Zod. So Zod actually ends up dying. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely murder. It's just not Superman who's doing it. But that's another thing that, you know, honestly, I mean, that... Uh, that was that was a hard one to watch, you know, uh, and read and sit through. I've always thought so. I mean, the, but you're right. That whole spread of page 19, that top half in Superman number 22, where you have these people who are basically begging for their lives, even though they don't deserve mercy, but they're still begging. And like you say, I mean, that's gonna hit, that's gonna reach the compassion in you. I mean, if you know, if you could go back in time and you had a gun to Hitler's head and he's begging you not to pull the trigger, if for as big a monster as that guy was, the, guy, the fact that somebody is just – he's just begging to live is going to reach you on some level. I don't care what kind of a son of a bitch the person is. And if it doesn't reach you, then, dude, I don't think you're any better than he is. That's the thing, mm. you know? And, you know, Superman had to – he obviously is not enjoying the show either. I mean, he's I mean, he's he's basically crying the entire time that he does it. But, you know, it's just he, he's doing, I think, what he what he believes to be the right thing and his rationale for it. And here's the thing, his rationale for it. I totally buy. I mean, he cannot take the chance that these guys might somehow get their powers back and then somehow uh, find their way uh, into his world because he got lucky here, but if they were to come to to his universe, and we're talking basically about characters with the pre-crisis uh, Superman's power levels. I mean, he's no match for any of them. 
nobody in the DC. There's nothing in the DC universe that that can be thrown at it, uh, these guys to stop them. You know, he's so. I guess basically he's containing a threat, and I, you know, and, and again, I think that a lot of people are maybe a little uncomfortable with that, but they'll accept it. It's the punishment aspect of it that you know. It's that that uh, panel where um, Superman says, "What I must do now is harder than anything I've ever uh, done before." But as the last representative of law and justice on this world, it falls to me to act as judge, jury, and executioner. Those are the two panels that I think honestly set people over the edge. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, and to tie it back to um, uh, Man of Steel. That moment at the end uh, of the uh, of the movie, I understand what Snyder was going for. I don't like the fact that it's in there. I agree with Superman's decision. I guess I haven't really talked too much about that. I, I agree with what with Superman's decision. It's just it, it's like anything, you know. Just because I agree with it doesn't necessarily mean I I want to see it. You know, there is yeah. I, I think a, a sort of I don't know. Uh, moral imperative. You don't want to see Superman cross certain lines and stuff like that. And, you know, it was actually the Superman 2 connection that ultimately, you know, made me think about it. You know, it's a very kind of similar thing there where you're right, the context is different, but Superman effectively did in Superman number 22 what he did in Superman 2, you know, the movie mm-hmm. Superman 2. And it's a completely different context than it is Man of Steel, where, you know, Zod is still a threat, and he's actually actively trying to kill people at that moment. Honestly, I hadn't really thought to connect the uh, the uh, events of Superman 22 and Superman 2 with one another until you mentioned it. But, you know, you're right. There really are a lot of parallels there. Anyway, I'm running my mouth. What do you got? Well, I mean, beyond that, the story itself... Up until the end, I remember it was better than I remembered it because it brought in the Matrix Supergirl. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was a great idea, a great way to say, well, Superman's still the last Kryptonian, but you get your Kara too. And they didn't always have the right path with her. It took a long time for somebody to get a grip. But in context, in concept, I mean, what a great idea. Different power set yet represents some of the same aspects. And just watching her journey was kind of cool. Well, and there's also the fact that she has ties to Superman, but not really. She mm-hmm. has ties to Smallville, but not really. And I don't know. I, I kind of like – what I will say, though, is that um, her origin story, it really is a bitch to kind of summarize quickly. Yes. Yeah, she's a protoplasmic, shape-shifting clone of Lana Lang from an alternate universe that no longer exists anymore, and she's the last survivor of a war that destroyed the entire world. So, what's for lunch? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a that 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 is a tough one. But how do you feel about dystopian futures? Do you enjoy reading them, or does it does it bother you? A little mixture of the two. Uh, honestly, there was a time when I kind of had an affection for them. I had to read um, uh, Brave New World when I was a senior in high school. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting myself into there. I just thought, you know, it was this, it was one of the classics and people are, well, I don't know, classic, but it's, you know, it, it's a very famous book. And so, um, I think the first two or three chapters, you know, it was, th- th- those were some of the most, sh- that's some of the most shocking stuff I've ever read, I, that I'd ever read before. And I kind of had, or not shocking, I guess, but I guess like thought provoking or, prov- I don't know. Anyway, and so I kind of went through a phase where I was sort of into uh, dystopian futures. I, there was a point when I wasn't like a core Terminator fan, but I really kind of enjoyed, especially the um, the first Terminator film, really enjoyed that. But uh, it's just, the, it just seems like dystopian futures, are, that's such a fixture of uh, fiction these days. I've kind of lost my taste for it, but anyway, yeah, there, there's your answer. So now why do you ask? Well, what I'm asking is revisiting this. I know it's a dystopian present of sorts. Mm-hmm. Did it leave you empty? A bit. Okay. Um, it's not just me. Good. Well, we're all a product, I guess, of our, of our influences, right? Mm-hmm. The last time I read this was a couple years ago, and I... I had a kind of different view of Superman then as opposed to now. And now I consider myself to be a uh, a pretty significant pre-crisis Superman fan. In fact, in a lot of ways to me, the Silver and Bronze Age Superman, more and more I'm starting to think of that iteration of the character as being definitive. And thinking of it in those terms is one of the reasons why I, I was never a huge fan of whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was never a huge fan of whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, but um, the last time I read it, I just really resented everything that, uh, that whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow is, everything it stands for, everything it tries to accomplish. And coming away, you know, coming at this story here with this kind of different perspective that I've got now on Superman. This, you know what? Maybe this is a little too meta. I don't know, but one of the things that kind of jumped out at me is that you know there is a sense in which John Byrne is kind of giving a middle finger to the editorial. You know, like, hey, you guys, here's a time bomb. Have fun with it. See ya. <laughs> and but at the same time, I've wondered. You know, and this I, I said that this story operates on two levels before. Well, and I mentioned the first one. The second one. That the Supergirl saga alt, uh, operates on is this sort of, I think, a kind of meta commentary on his own reboot of Superman. I mean, I'm sure that Byrne got a lot of satisfaction out of rebooting Superman more or less the way he wanted to. But he said time and again that he was willing to work within the old continuity and that it was DC that insisted on the hard reboot with Superman. And so he rebooted Superman. But I sometimes think that Byrne was sad to see at least some aspects of the pre-crisis Superman mythos go by the wayside, even if in the end it was ultimately for the best. And I can't help thinking that at least a few aspects of the Supergirl saga are Byrne, maybe even subconsciously, making literal what Crisis on, on uh, Infinite Earths did to the pre-Crisis Superman. I mean, does that does that scan for you? Yeah. Now that you point that out, he's 
because one of the edicts was Superman would be the only Kryptonian. Well, here's Supergirl. So, you know, pre-crisis. Right. There was a family. Well, Superboy is not in the equation. Well, here's a way to cheat and put Superboy in. And yeah, I think it's burn showing us, hey, you know, this stuff still works. It wasn't completely broken. And I don't believe that the Bronze Age was completely broken. However, having said that, I liked being of an age where when the reboot happened, when Man of Steel started, I was aware of it. Kind of like the Renaissance, the first age that anybody was aware of, hey, we're doing something specific. So I was able to get on the ground floor. And I just lost my train of thought. Um, (laughs) Well, I I liked that that age was there, so I don't – resent the reboot i'm glad it happened i'm a big fan of the burn era and like you up to a point i consider it definitive and this was if and i can see where you're saying yeah he's he's planning those ideas what he's also doing though is yeah he may be giving the middle finger to editorial but he's also planting some really great seeds that other writers are going to take the ball and just run it to the end zone spike it do the curly shuffle well, you know, I've had ideas that, you know, we live in a in a marketplace now where you can support multiple continuities in comics. I mean, with the DC Digital First line, you've got the sort of continuity agnostic Superman, the sort of generic Superman book called The Adventures of Superman, existing alongside Smallville Season 11, existing alongside Batman 66, existing alongside... Um, Batman Beyond. None of these have anything to do with each other. They're just kind of there, and they're all under the same larger imprint of DC Digital First. And it's made me wonder, you know, they say that you can't really... You can't go home again, I guess is the way to put it. And so, but I've wondered, you know, more than once, what it might be like if John Byrne could somehow be enticed into coming back in finishing this, sto- well, not finishing the story, continuing the story, I would be kind of interested to see that, you know? Well, I would be careful what you wish for, though, because if you remember, Marvel let Chris Claremont come back and do a, a series called X-Men Forever, mm-hmm. where he picked up where he left off with the X-Men and showed us what he had in store, and it was god-awful. Right. So. <laughs> right. The only time I can ever think of this ever really working and even this was a fluke, all right? And it wasn't all that good either. But um, you remember when Roger Stern came back to uh, Spider-Man for that Hobgoblin Lives miniseries from like 1996 or something like that? Yeah. I read that, and it was it was pleasant, I guess. But it wasn't, it wasn't really up to the usual type of Roger Stern standard that I think a lot of people have for Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. It was just basically a sort of follow-up to a story that honestly i think had resolved itself you know some there was some story some internal continuity and logic and things that just didn't really add up but apart from that i mean basically people had their man and i i don't really see where there was any this just burning desire for people to have the real hobgoblin so and you know and so i totally get that but on the one hand if any creator could tackle any character and make it all work again years down the line i'm kind of tempted to think that you know john byrne would be it now none of this is meant to be a slight against you know the creative teams that came on board later on and the things that they were able to do because 
Honestly, I was too young to get in on the ground floor of Man of Steel. It was just a little bit. I, I was just I was like four or five or something like that when when it came out. I was just too young, and so the I guess kind of post burn Superman was the uh, that was the Superman that I really read and fell in love with and all that stuff. And like I said, I mean it's you know it's not as definitive for me as it used to be, but I still love it and. Definitely, I, I value that, and I and I I don't want to see basically I don't want to seem like I'm, you know, disrespecting you know all of that. I'm just saying that part of me would be kind of interested to see where Byrne would have gone with this because you read the very last page of Superman number twenty two, and it's clear that you know whether he's continuing the story or not, John Byrne doesn't see a way to continue forward with the status quo. You know, something here has. Superman's crossed a line. Now, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing is for other creative teams to decide, but you know, what we cannot do is act like this never happened. Mm-hmm. And I would kind of like to have seen what, you know, how Byrne might have resolved this or continued this or what have you. And I'm fully aware of the fact that history just is not on his side here, but at the same time, I'd like to think that if anybody could possibly be I don't know, if anyone could could if there was ever anybody who who could buck the odds, it's got to be him, you know. So yeah, I, I can't deny that. Burn when he decides to show up and give his a game, yeah. It's just it has to be more than a job, is what I found with him. He'll take assignments where it's like, look, I, I got to get a paycheck, or I got to get my name out there, and they turn out okay. Spider-Man Chapter One would be a good example of that. But then you have something where he takes over Wonder Woman. And that book is great, and nobody was reading it for a year. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. So, yeah, it depends on if you, if you have John Byrne, if you have his buy-in. Yeah, he, th- I think I would love to see where this path would have taken in his in his idea. And without the editorial interface that he was running up against all the time. <sighs> yeah, I. Look, he's the one that had to fight those battles. I don't know. But that's actually one of those things that, looking back at it, and not to call him a liar or anything, but I, do you believe him whenever he says that he was always, that basically editorial was always on his balls about this, about that? Uh, do you really buy that? I think, I think it's one side of the story. I don't think they were on his balls as much as he would have us believe, but I do believe, yeah, editorial had their hand in the pot. That's editorial's job. And I think for him, he already had, I don't want to say a chip on his shoulder because I think it was also kind of a, a deserved bit of frustration where, you know, you had Dick, Dick Giordano saying, well, there's the Superman we license and then there's the one you put in your comic. Mm. So he, the mentality, I mean, I've had bosses where it feels like they're micromanaging and really they're just doing what they're supposed to do, which is keep me keep me honest. And with Superman, there's so much licensing. There's so many legal ramifications tied to him because he's he's such an icon that, yeah, there are certain things that you, you, you have to turn right when you want to turn left. And I can see that being frustrating if you're you know, trying to give out the best story you can and you feel like you're trying to break the mold. Well, and you know what? I mean, it's like I get that, but on the one hand, you know, uh, you know, I I totally understand where you're coming from on that, where he's coming from. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, Frank Miller has said over and over again that the, you know, that 
when he was, you know, making a name for himself, what he wanted to do was look for titles that were basically teetering on the edge of cancellation because he said that you can do anything with those, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you can go anywhere, do anything, and even if you fail, who cares, you know? But if you succeed, oh boy. And that, I, and obviously a lot of people credit him with saving Daredevil from cancellation, rightly so, I think. But whenever, but you know, and that and that kind of mentality works great on Daredevil, a book that at least at the time nobody gave a damn about. But mm-hmm. you know, you come back to a, a book like Superman. He is one of, I don't know that he's been one of the top selling, uh, a comic uh, comic book characters in a long time, but he is one of the most prolific. He's one of the most famous and iconic. And I'm sorry, you know, you deal with a character like this, you're gonna have notes. Yeah, you know, and from the sounds of it, the new Fifty Two—they've gone way overboard with the amount of micromanagement that goes on, based on just some stuff I've heard. But if John Byrne thought he was going to be able to come onto this book and just do whatever the hell he wanted, I mean, part of me kind of feels like, you know, dude, if you believed them when they told you that, it's kind of your fault. You know, I look—I've got nothing against John Byrne as a person or as because I've never met him. Or as a creator, because I think he's one of the most talented and creative that the industry's ever seen. But, you know, it just seems like on a personal level, sometimes there's a naivete that, you know, or at least that's what I interpret whenever he says things like, you know, well, I was told things were going to be like this, they're going to be like that, and I was going to be able to do whatever the hell I wanted. And I'm like, dude, you know, I'm, I'm, there, there comes a point in life where you kind of need to develop a sharp enough acumen to say, I know you're bullshitting me. So why don't we talk about how things are really going to be, you know? I mean, yeah. I don't Well, you can't you can't get a job at McDonald's and expect to decide to cook Whoppers one day. Even if they tell you that. Exactly that. You got to know exactly what you're walking into and Burn was enough of a professional had been around the industry long enough to know, you know, these are products. You don't own these. Yes, you get to kind of guide their destinies for a certain period of time, but they're still products. They're not your toys. Which, that's a double-edged sword, but again, going into it, he was a professional. He should have known what he was stepping into. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, and that leads – and where – you know, ultimately where I was going to uh, lead, uh, lead with that was to this day – and I, I think you actually really nailed it when you said that uh, – there's a sense in which this storyline is kind of burn giving DC editorial the middle finger. Mm-hmm. And number one, I, I, you know, I agree with that. And on the other hand, I also think, you know, if that's true and like I said, I kind of think it is, I think that's kind of a petty and juvenile and sort of immature thing to do. But, um, I guess in so far as, you know, like this whole, you know, Superman killing is, is this, is this how you would have wanted to see John Byrne leaving the book? Basically, with uh, bringing Supergirl back, polishing off the uh, pocket universe, and in the bargain, killing three people. Is this the way that you would have wanted to see John Byrne leave, or or would you have had something else in mind? I would I would have something in mind where I mean, you want to feel uplifted at the end of a run. If you know if you're going to put your you're going to sign your name to something, I would hope he would put something out where it's not. A complete failure for Superman, prevent you know failing to prevent it or a complete planet from dying, barely defeating the villains, and at that point turning to a step that's 
as you as you pointed out, it's probably not his step to take. You know, he he took a decision there, and that can be debated forever. I, but again, I would like to see something where Superman wins, and in this, Superman is definitely got some dirt on his hands. He's tarnished a bit, which. Yeah, that's some great creative stuff to stem from. And again, for the writers took great advantage of this. But, you know, if you're an, if you're a creator, don't you want to end something a little bit more definitively? You'll give a wink to the camera if it's Superman. Right. I, uh, something a little more celebratory. Yeah. Well, fair enough. And I, you know, I I really can't argue against that. Now, I think one of the – and now we're – this could be going a little bit beyond the scope of what we're specifically here to talk about with this storyline. But one of the – and again, this is a completely retrospective thing on my part, and I realize that. One of the things that really could have been interesting with this story was Lex Luthor and Superman had a very – I mean, it was a very antagonistic relationship, but – uh, in this burn age continuity, but it was still different from the pre-crisis continuity. I always thought that one of the, the basically, I thought that there is a lot of juice to the idea of Lex Luthor somehow finding out what Superman did in this parallel universe, Ooh. and then <laughs> announcing that, just shouting it from the rooftops, you know. That this untarnished, yeah, stainless uh, champion that we all look up to maybe isn't so squeaky clean after all. And, you know, it, I mean, Superman, obviously, there was, a, there was plenty enough self-flagellation going on there to spare. So I don't know if maybe the uh, creators, because they had to have thought about that. And maybe what they ultimately decided was that it would have been just... There is such a there, there. There comes a point when you can go too far with any story, and maybe that would have been the breaking point. But I, to this day, I think like there would have been a shit ton of story potential there because this would have changed the way the world looks at Superman forever. You know, for better or for worse, good or bad, he would not necessarily be thought of as the Boy Scout of the DC universe anymore, or if he was. He'd have to sweat a little bit more for that reputation now than what he would used to have to be able to do. Does that make sense? I mean, what would you think of a story like that? No, as soon as you said it, it the light bulb went off. I'm like, that would be – it would be hard to eventually resolve because you do want to bring Superman back to a point where he is Superman. He is the Boy Scout. But the, during the time that that would be playing out, you would have so much meat on the bones in terms of what he's going through and his thought process and what he's trying to achieve. And it may be something where, you know, he would push it too far, where he would try to do too much. And I kind of see like there would have been a perfect path between what we we saw here and where Superman dies and the death could have been the way to bring it back. There's so much potential there. Like my brain is just popping off. Well, all right. and, and you said it, and it's obvious when you say it, but suddenly I'm wondering why it's never come up before. Well, this is the first time anybody's thrown that on the table. Well, I don't know. It's just something that I've always just kind of thought about, and it, it just felt like to me it was a missed opportunity. And, you know, especially in this period, I mean, those two characters were just at each other's throats so much mm -hmm. that 
There's no way that somebody higher up didn't think about that, too. And I have to assume an affirmative decision was made at some point to not do that. Yeah. And I, I, and again, I'm not second guessing that. It's but I'm I'm just saying that it would have been. Um, I think it could have it could have made for a pretty interesting story. But um, now I guess one thing that we haven't talked about in all of this. Well, actually, before we move on to art, um, do you have anything else as far as uh, you know story or anything? And I don't want you to feel like you know you have to wrap up. If, if there are more threads that you want to follow, feel free. I just I don't want to close that that thing out until you know we both had a chance to say our piece. No, I, I think we've we've pretty well hit a lot of different areas. I mean, we could talk about this for hours, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make for good podcast listening. So, <laughs> true that. All right, fair enough. Well, as far as the art is concerned, this is um, it's a little bit unusual the art uh, presentation in these um, in these comics because by and large the art, except for things like the first page and then certain miscellaneous one pages here and there. The art is, uh, and by which I'm saying the storytelling, is actually stretched across both pages. Mm-hmm. So each panel goes from whatever page on the left, going and stretched all the way across to the page on the right. And this is an unusual thing in in, uh, in comics. And there are sections in this uh, in this story where I think that works really effectively, especially at the beginning of Superman number 21. I think it works really effectively. There are other parts of the story where I don't think John Byrne and uh, Jerry Ordway were always necessarily aware of the fact that because of the fact that this is being stretched across two pages, you want to keep the action to the sides as much as possible rather than to the center of the page where there's going to be more distortion because of the page folds and everything. Yeah. By and large, though, I think this is some of uh, both artists' career best. And I think a good example of what I'm talking about, of John Byrne kind of having his cake and eating it too, as far as his own continuity is concerned, is right there on uh, in a Superman number 21 on page 4, where it's sort of a throwback, kind of, to the uh, Silver Age Superman meeting uh, Kara Zor-El for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And... The dialogue, it, it almost uh, Superman's dialogue on that very, la- I can't even call it a panel, but on that last space of the page, it's almost, it's just taken it almost verbatim off of the cover of Action Comics number 252. It's just, it, it's just, it's witty, it's funny, it doesn't really draw too much attention to itself. And if you get it, you get it. Yeah. And I think dropping out the background was perfect for that. I agree. Because this is a meeting of two characters, so they're the only subjects here. <clears throat> and so, anyway, as I say, the um, – and then, you know, that's that, – and I think that actually holds very much true for a Superman number 21 and 22. As far as uh, Superman – Adventures of Superman number uh, 444, Jerry Ordway had he – was, he was at a point in his career where he was getting a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better with every passing – not even every passing issue, with every passing page. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can see his growth. And um, even by that standard, though, I think he actually hit a completely different plateau with uh, Adventures of Superman number 444 because the art is just so atmospheric and dark. But at the same time – you know, Superman never looks anything other than heroic and noble. Even Lex Luthor looks heroic, even though he doesn't really deserve it. But 
you know, all around, you know, I, I think I'm, – I'm, look, I'm a Jerry Ordway, you know, uh, fanboy from way back. So mm. I'm probably not the one to look to for a completely unbiased and objective review of the man's art. But Yeah, that makes two of us. So <clears throat> oh, really? I, oh. have some, I have some of his art hanging on my wall. Oh, oh really? What, uh, what, what all have you got? Do you know uh, there's a Power of Shazam poster that came out with uh, Captain Marvel punching Black Adam against the uh, – Tesla coils. Oh, I remember that. That one's awesome. You have Got that? that? I have that, and then I have his preliminary sketch that he made of that. I won that on eBay, and here's the kicker. When he sent that to me, not only did he send me that, sign it with my name, on the packing slip, he drew an extra Captain Marvel. That's the caliber of guy he is. That is Just a badass. kick in an extra. Yeah. So, yeah, completely unbiased here. So Yeah, well. Or completely biased. Yeah. And, like, I don't know about anybody else, and this is maybe going to piss some people off who are listening to this, but just know that it has a happy ending. But when I started reading uh, Superman and collecting – well, I mean, yeah, I, really, I, maybe the better way to put it is collecting Superman as opposed to just, you know, when you're a kid, you get comics and they you just play with them until they fall apart and then you throw them away and then you get more comics and, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. I was a, more of a – uh, Dan Jurgens kind of kid. I just there was something about Dan Jurgens's art that just spoke to me, you know. And just I just loved it, you know. And I mean specifically his take on Superman. Other characters, <laughs> well, but yeah, his Superman though was awesome stuff. And then Cary Gamble loved him. It took some time to warm up to Jerry Ordway, and if I had to put a thumbtack on the map and say this is where it started. It was Superman number 55, uh, part of the uh, Time and Time Again storyline where you have Superman in the World War II era. I want to say he's in, he's in uh, the Warsaw Ghetto, and um, he basically ends up derailing a train. He uh, foils the, the Nazis, um, their atomic bomb projects and all this stuff. And, you know, kind of the same thing applies there. The art... This is not a happy story. This is not happy subject matter, but Superman doesn't – he always looks like a hero. But the art is still appropriately dark and moody. It's just – it's like somehow it just doesn't affect Superman. I don't know how, I don't know how the hell the guy does it, but he does it. And that, that issue is what turned me into a Jerry Ordway fan for life, just that one issue right there. That was a very good time. In in just the creative teams, I mean, you mentioned Jurgens. I'm like, yes, love Jurgens, love Kerry Gamble. What a great time! Even even uh, I missed Burn, but there were plenty of people who were there to fill in the void who did fantastic work. And I would so, say are, are every bit John Burns equal as far as their creative contributions on Superman. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. And suddenly I, I want to talk about time and time again, but <laughs> um, well. We'll talk about that. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, but all around now, and another kind of neat thing, and this is uh, again, it's it's sort of Jerry Ordway's thing. At the very end of of uh, Adventures of Superman number four forty four, this there's this sort of Independence Day type. Um, yeah, I don't know what you speech. <laughs> yeah, and then you have Superman who's like saying, "Okay, that's it. I'm sick of them and their bullshit. We're going to go out there and kick them in the shins and." You have this huge just cast of characters, starting from left to right. You've got Pete Ross, Supergirl, Bruce Wayne, Superman. I'm not sure who generic 
other Hal Jordan. Oh, that's Hal Jordan. Okay. Yep. Oh, oh, because his hair's dark, dark brown. I see it now. Okay, fair enough. Um, Lex Luthor and then Oliver Queen. And all of these characters. I mean, you know, you think about how tricky that is to have that many characters. I realize it's not like we're talking about a shit ton of characters here, but you still have a bunch of characters on one page. Each of them has to have their own anatomy, their own build, their own you know uh, facial features and hairstyles and facial hair in some cases and all this other stuff. And the ability to do all of that in a way where you know oh and something else most of them are actually wearing identical you know uniforms and stuff and doing all of this in a way where everyone is distinct from everyone else just at a glance you don't need text labels to say okay well this is so and so and then there's this guy you know you know who these characters are um just by uh you know looking at them and there are so few artists in the business that can pull something like this off but Jerry Ordway is always one of them, you know? And I always kind of felt like maybe it was – it's like Superman was at once his blessing and his curse. I often wondered, you know, what type of career Ordway might have had if he'd come up on other characters and that maybe being associated with Superman. It's great for us, but in the long term, maybe didn't help him as much. But you – know, uh, hmm? He's he he does have other things. I mean, he's like, Power of Shazam is a, another good example, and that's one of my go-to examples because, you know, he didn't do the art on the book itself towards till towards the end, but he wrote it, and so a lot of there's a lot of fandom over in that direction. There's a lot of fandom for, you know, his uh, All Star Squadron work. But yes, you're correct. Superman is the one where it put him on the map for most fans, and I don't know if he had done something like Aquaman if his career would have gone a different direction because we I'm going to, I'm not going to put you in this group, but you, if, if it's true, feel free to chime in. Mm-hmm. I tended to pigeonhole him as that Superman artist. And then all of his other art, I compare to his work on Superman. That lasted until power Shazam. Actually, mm-hmm. I was one of them. Yep. And if you look at the, the graphic novel power of Shazam, you see he continued to grow. He learned how to paint and did an exceptional job on that book, on that graphic novel. He really did. Um, yeah, I could – I don't know. I, like I said, I mean I am not the guy to talk. If, you, if what you want is you know, fair, unbiased, and objective reviews of Jerry Ordway's work, dude, I'm sorry I'm not your guy. I'm always going to be a fanboy. And, uh, but I, you know, I'd like to think, though, that I can at least muster enough um, objectivity that I can say that you know, this – I just freaking love the art in uh, in this issue. It's just it, especially you know, there was a point when you know I'd sort of, and I talked about it a little bit in my first episode, so I don't want to turn this into a little bit of a pity party. But you know, basically, I really, I don't want to say I don't want to say I came back to comics because I never really left, but it's just like I I guess I recommitted myself, you know, and. At the time that it happened, I, you know, I was going through a lot of Jerry Ordway stuff on Superman, and it hit me. You know, it's like at the time that all that was happening, this is what I want from Superman right now. You know, like this look and this kind of majesty to it. You know, this weight. And uh, yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, this is amazing. I love it. So um, I think I'm pretty much talked at. You got anything else you wanna you wanna chime in with? No, I think we've covered most aspects of this without getting into the 
less interesting parts. So fair enough. Okay. All right. Well, uh, normally, uh, here's where I'd give Dave the floor once again to uh, hype up his shows. Unfortunately, though, uh, Dave's on sort of a little bit of a podcasting vacation right now. But you can still find uh, back episodes of Dave's Daredevil podcast, the title of which is Dave's Daredevil podcast. Truth in advertising. Yeah. Uh, well, you, and you can find it at daredevilpodcast.com. There's also the Starman Observatory, uh, back episodes of which can be found at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. And um, I'm not sure... Uh, if and or when uh, Dave might uh, come back to podcasting. But, you know, whenever you, you know, if and when you have a chance, you know, we'd all love to have you back, you know, because, uh, you know, obviously, you know, your contributions and in, in, uh, in this episode, no one, no one out there really sounds like you. No one really says the things you do the way that you do. So, you know, you're, you really are missed right now. So you need to know that. Well, just know boredom will eventually overtake me. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Fair enough. All right. Uh, now, and as I said before, if you uh, want to listen to other guys talk about uh, Burn Age Superman, specifically the story uh, that we're talking about here, the Supergirl saga, allow me once again to recommend you haul balls to fortressofbailytude.com or search for From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast in iTunes. And speaking of From Crisis to Crisis, Michael Bailey will join me next week to talk about Superman number 149, the title of which is The Death of Superman. Otherwise, I just want to thank uh, J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave once again for joining in with me this week. It's, uh, it's really been a lot of fun. Other than that, I think we're pretty much done here. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. We are out. Fantastic. Yeah, that was... I was surprised at how much my opinion of the story Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Did you know... You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opening, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. 
it doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Thank you.